Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. And I'm Ann Louise Gittleman, your award-winning author of over 37 books on health and healing. And I'm grateful to have all of you listening to this podcast, which I'm told is growing by leaps and bounds in popularity. So I'm very thankful, very grateful to all of you. And I'm also thankful to our sponsors, Unikey Health Systems, my go-to resource for the highest quality third-party tested supplements, which I've been a proud spokesman for for over 25 years. And I'm also very happy to welcome our newest sponsor, CS-Health, which has the most activated sulforaphane on the market, and it acts as my best internal and external sun protector. So check them both out, please. Thank you, my friends. Now, today, my guest is Brandon LaGreca, who is a very, very enlightened acupuncturist who's written a book called Cancer, Stress, and Mindset. We're going to learn how to focus the mind to empower healing and resilience. Brandon LaGreca, welcome to the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Oh, it's an honor to be on with you, Anne Louise. Thank you. Now, you are a very, very acclaimed acupuncturist. Why did you write a book about cancer? Well, it all started with my own cancer journey. In 2015, I was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so both as now a cancer patient and as a practitioner, um, I felt called to uh, to share my experience and what I've learned along the way with with a larger audience. And so that became my blog and then my books as of recent. So what did you learn along the way? What is cancer? Is cancer a mindset? Why does it affect people, certain people more than others? Is there a cancer personality? I'm so interested in this topic. You know, I really think there is. Uh, classically, we think of like type A's are the people that can can be more susceptible to heart disease. And the people that are type C's are the ones that are more susceptible for cancers and maybe autoimmune disease and such. So I think there really is a cancer personality. I don't know if there's any hard and fast rules, but um, by and large, I would say it is definitely something that would affect people more if they are the type of person who internalizes a lot of their stress. Stresses and traumas in early life, I think, can predispose us to cancer. Now, I think it's, it's much broader than that. And I think if there's a second uh, aspect of cancer that I try to get across into my writing and teaching is this environmental medicine piece, which I know you've been, oh my goodness, writing about and researching for, for years. Eons, eons, it seems. It's yeah. So, it's, it's so true. You know, I'm so interested, Brandon, in this topic because my husband is a four-stage melanoma survivor. And you talk about internalizing stress. You just hit a real good button there because that was so true lost his mother at the age of two or lost his father at the age of 17 almost lost his own life as well wow. so there's an awful lot of trauma can you speak to the trauma that's most prevalent in cancer victims you know i think it varies but i would say if i had to to summarize it as you know what do maybe they all have in common i would say they all share the element of um, having the effect on the individual that they are not safe on the planet, that they need to protect themselves or guard themselves. And you think that's, I mean, that could describe a, a whole lot of different traumas and stresses that we encounter. But I think that in essence, it all definitely comes down to um, how are we guarding ourselves against that stress? In fact, one of the questions that I typically ask cancer patients that come to my clinic is I often start, I mean, has there been any time in your life where you feel like you didn't wish to be here? And, and I'm not saying that to suggest that the, the person in front of me is necessarily a, a suicide case, but you know, has there ever been a time where they just completely checked out, where, the, where it was just so much for them 
that it became overwhelming. And at that point, I feel like that is one aspect that can create the seed of cancer within us. How so? Very phenomenally interesting. You know, I, I read the foreword to your wonderful book by Nasha Winters. And by the way, the name of Brandon's book is Cancer, Stress, and Mindset, which you all should be getting. It's focusing the mind to empower healing and resilience. And she said something very provocative at the end of her foreword, and that is, what is cancer trying to heal in you? So what do you find it's trying to heal in most of your patients? You know, there again, I think if I had to summarize it with any one aspect, it is how you are living out of balance in with nature and natural law. And I'm going to I'm going to split that into two kind of subtopics. I mean, the way that I think about disease in general as a as a Chinese medicine practitioner, but then very specifically about cancer is there's these really two elements to it. There's the environmental piece and then there's the internal experience of the individual. And this is this is straight up traditional Chinese medicine. We say there's really only two main causes of disease. There's these external pathogenic factors that influence us. And in terms of cancer, we consider those carcinogens. But then there's our internal experience, things like um, we say an imbalance within the emotions, stress, trauma, you know, grief, anger, you name it. And that those specific emotions might predispose us to specific types of cancer. And where those two things meet, the external and the internal, that's really the art of medicine. And so looking at that, I feel like, okay, if we, if we have this now, this broader umbrella perspective of what healing is in the face of cancer, then we can take like what Dr. Winter said, you know, what are we trying to, what, what is cancer trying to teach us? Well, you know, quite simply, how are you living out of balance with nature and natural principles? What are you doing in terms of how are you um, maybe handling stress in your life? A lot of people tend to to do very destructive habits in the face of stress. They tend to in themselves ingest carcinogens like smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol because they're self-medicating for stress. So that's a very direct one-to-one -one correlation between the stresses that they're encountering and then the kind of destructive habits that they might have. So that's you know an eye-opening. How am I maybe, maybe I'm only sleeping three, four hours a night and, and burning the candle at both ends. Well, you can't do that for very long without something breaking. So it's just this wake-up call to again, how am I not living according to natural principles and then how I could can heal those things in my life. So you being a uh, longtime acupuncturist, are there certain meridians that need help? Do you find that there's a certain pattern of health with your cancer sufferers? Yeah. So the one I think comes up pretty much categorically, um, you know, across the board is the liver meridian. And for a few different reasons, I'll give you the, the Western and the Eastern perspective. The Western's pretty straightforward. I mean, even according to naturopathic medicine, we think that you know, the liver is, is so important in terms of detoxifying all the things that we are encountering, you know, the, all the different toxicities that we are, um, that our bodies are having to deal with. And so the liver from that perspective is key. And so we can do lots of different therapies, both acupuncture, herbal to support liver function. But then in Chinese medicine um, and the classics, we say a very interesting thing. We say the liver is responsible for the smooth flow of emotions. And it is the primary organ that helps with stress and how we, how we actually mitigate stress. So although we have different emotions associated with the different organs, according to five element theory, it's really the liver's job to take whatever emotion is conjured up with us, you know, any negativity and to help it move it through the body. So the liver is kind of the mover and the shaker. So from both of those angles, we I feel like 
you know, any cancer patient would probably do well to check in with their liver meridian in terms of what we can do in Chinese medicine. And what about the kidneys? I, you know, before we began the podcast, I told you that I just wrote a book and unfortunately it's taken quite a lot of energy focused time and my, and my uh, chi out of me and my yeah. kidneys need help. So tell us about the kidneys. Tell us about the lungs. And while you're at it, throw in the gallbladder and thyroid. <laughs> so let me start with the kidneys. The kidneys are really important because they are, they're kind of like our savings account of energy. If we think about the lungs and the air that we breathe, and then our spleen and stomach, you know, that in Chinese medicine are two main digestive organs. These are the organs that are going to bring new energy into our body through the foods that we eat, the liquids that we drink, and the air that we breathe. And that's kind of like our checking account. We make, we make uh, deductions and we, we make you know, additions to our checking account by living a good, healthy lifestyle, eating good foods, breathing clean air. But our kidneys, we think of them as being like our savings account. And we're only, we're only born with so much energy. And that's kind of like our quintessential nature. And, and that's kind of like our time clock as well. Uh, once our, our savings is spent, then basically that's considered the end of our life. So um, there's these wisdom and longevity practices in Chinese medicine that talk about tonifying the kidney. And what's interesting in terms of that from a cancer perspective is the emotion that's associated with the kidney is fear. And that is by far the dominant emotion that tends to go with cancer. And you think about all the different fears that, that come up around cancer. Okay, first of all, it's our mortality, right? You know, the fear of death itself. And then in terms of what we are offered in conventional oncology, there's the fear of the treatment itself. And let's say you get through that, that you know, horrific treatment and you're in remission, then there's also the fear of relapse and then there's this fourth fear that just kind of lingers within society in general as a thought form, which is just fear of cancer itself, even amongst healthy people. So cancer to me seems like it's a very fear-driven, fear-dominant disease pattern um, that comes up for us to kind of figure out. And so that's definitely another thing that I addressed right away with, with all my cancer patients, just to see where they're at in that perspective. What, what are the lungs? What is the emotion for the lungs? So the emotion with, for the lungs is grief. And that's a really interesting one because I think this is really pertinent for women. And I make this correlation with uh, breast cancer, particularly breast cancer that are in the upper quadrants um, that, are, that are closer to the heart and lungs. And I see this with, um, with women, if they have had a lot of a grief in their life, maybe they've lost someone really close to them. They, it's almost like, and I'm gonna, I'm exaggerating a bit, but think of someone who's experienced a deep seated grief that their chest kind of caves in a little bit, their shoulders slump. It's almost like their lungs become weak in that process. You know, their lung chi just can't fully be expansive again and have their shoulders back and then look up to the sky and just, you know, meet, meet the day with a, with a certain vibrancy. It's like they're kind of closed off. And I think it's that stagnancy of energy that can come from grief that really can predispose us to you know, lung issues in general, and maybe even lung cancers, breast cancers, so on and so forth. And what about the thyroid? There's so many issues in this day and time with thyroid. Is that? Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, it's, we have Chinese an epidemic. Does Chinese medicine with, deal with it? 
We we have an epidemic of thyroid issues. I mean, Hashimoto's alone is would be. (laughs) Yeah. So thyroid's interesting because it's in the neck. Um, We would also put that within the within the greater umbrella of uh, lung chi function and 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 the lungs in general. Um, But then, as an endocrine as an endocrine organ, we can also make a parallel to thyroid function and a different meridian in Chinese medicine, which is called San Zhao, which is Chinese, but what it roughly translates into is triple burner, triple heater. I never understood that. Can you explain that? (laughs) So uh, caveat, I'm not sure I exactly fully explain it, but my personal opinion and and different practitioners will say different things. um, My personal opinion is that that what we're calling the triple burner is the the collective function of all of, of the endocrine system because they are they they really if you think of them collectively they they do communicate with each other they're just this even this conversation about stress right we have the hypothalamus the pituitary the adrenals the thyroid all of them are communicating through hormone signaling so in, in my world for sure i think the triple burner to me i think of that as like the endocrine organ and, and the gallbladder, is that associated with the, the liver? Yes, exactly. The, the gallbladder is called the young organ or the paired organ that goes along with the liver. So and the they go emotion, together. the emotion it's associated with? So is, resent, is that resentment? Yeah, it can be. So liver, liver, gallbladder can be several things. It can be anger. It can be resentment. It can be frustration. Um, maybe with the gallbladder, specifically even issues of rage can come up. I mean, really deep-seated anger. There's a, there's an interesting expression in Chinese medicine too. Um, when someone has, when, when someone is brave, they say they have a strong gallbladder function. And when someone's, when someone's very meek, um, you know, if you want to insult, insult someone in Chinese, you say they have a small gallbladder. Mm. <laughs> I remember learning that in Chinese. Gonna, so that's very interesting. That. I'm going to remember yeah. that. <laughs> So that's, so we, that's we, the liver and gallbladder function. Uh, any other organs? The adrenals, is that associated with the kidneys and the bank account of energy? Absolutely. That's where I put it. The adrenal glands, for sure, because of where they sit on top of the kidneys. I think the only one that we missed, well, there's the heart and small intestine, and those are oh, fire let's organs. let's talk about the heart and small intestine. We're coming out of heart season now. Absolutely. Yeah, the summertime and the peak. Um, so heart and small intestine, it's interesting. But most people translate that as joy, and I never really quite got that. Uh, you know, joy is a positive emotion, which is good. And in every one of these organs, by the way, there's there's the positive and negative that goes with it. But I have since learned that the, the kind of the negative energy that can scatter the heart energy, so to speak, is an exuberance, an over-exuberance. So think about if you've ever seen someone who is bipolar and they're in a manic episode, that kind of manic energy, we say that scatters the heart chi. Now, obviously, it doesn't have to be someone who's bipolar. Um, you can have someone who's just excessively just over exuberant and that say we can, it really taxes the heart. Even something as simple as sweating, we say that taxes the heart, just all that extra energy and fluids being moved around the body. Um, so we have to be careful about, you know, exercise, overdoing it, even, even asanas, great asanas are even just sweating excessively in a sauna, we say can injure the heart chi. Interesting. So if you were to talk about an anti-cancer mindset, which is a major chapter in your book, would you, would you have strategies to overcome these emotions? 
Yeah. So obviously it's going to be very individualized in sure. terms of the patient. And I'm going to want to figure out what maybe is at the root of it. Now I'm always how, going to address- How do you do that when somebody comes in to see you? You know, I'm fascinated, as I think I told you, with Chinese medicine. I see an acupuncturist twice a week. Mm -hmm. And I do that when I'm not feeling that I have the energy I need because of my weak kidney chi that you <laughs> and I also discussed. But my point being is with all this, when you developed your book and your philosophy, was it because of all the patients you had seen? So you were able to take real life testimonials and stories. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, and Louise, I think where I really so it's start. Not the, you're not theoretical. Well, I've got my own personal experience and then I've got all the practice, I mean, all the patients. And, and that maybe I've seen before years, we even delve into the patients, can you tell us more about your personal experience? I mean, why are you qualified? You sound like a very enlightened acupuncturist. Why are you qualified to write a book about cancer? Well, you know, I, I would say that my personal experience is what, what drives all of this. And, you know, having that stage four cancer diagnosis hanging over my head is, is what motivates Huge. me every day to Huge. basically live my best anti-cancer lifestyle. And that, that's really key. And what I'll tell you is one of the main questions that I ask myself every day and that I ask of all of my cancer patients that come to see me is how will this diagnosis make you a better person on all levels? physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, Sure. you know, and that's kind of, again, what, what Dr. Nasha Winters alluded to in, in the end of the forward. And, and to me, I think about that all the time. And that is the exact thing that I pose to the cancer patient that's sitting in front of me during their initial intake is how are we going to turn this around to make you a better person? And, and keep in mind, that's a very different question than saying, how are we going to cure your illness and get on the other side of it? Because I'm less interested in being disease focused and I'm more interested in being health focused. And, and the reason why that's of critical importance is because I can have someone who, let's say they are basically, they only have a few months to live. They have a very terminal case. It's extremely advanced. I don't feel like it's my job necessarily. And it definitely is not as an oncologist to, to give this person any hope that they are gonna necessarily get, get out of this alive. But let's be frank, no one gets out of this life alive. So we have to be, very specific about what I believe in my philosophy, why we're here and what this is all about. And to me is we're going to take whatever situation we're given, we're going to take these circumstances and we're going to motivate those to be better people. Now you can do that at any stage of any disease process. You can be literally on your deathbed and you can make a choice in that moment to be a more forgiving person, to be a more loving, to open your heart to the people that are around you and even in your own excarnation in the death process. And so that is what I'm really trying to, to hone in on when I have that cancer patient before me. And then from that, that's where I'm going to frame the anti-cancer mindset, but everything has to come back with their why. Why are you doing this? What's this going to be? What's, what, is, what is your future vision going forward that you're going to be a better person on the other side of that? So are there any patterns you've seen in your cancer victims? I mean, to say, is there childhood trauma? Is there abuse? Is there an accident? Is there a disease? What is the commonality there? Yeah, you know, and, and this is actually going to be the subject of my next book, or I'm going to delve quite a bit more into trauma itself. And I think about trauma as really being a, a true, the true seed of cancer and stress as being the thing that really promotes cancer. And so I'll, I'll give you an example. Here's one story that I, that I heard from a cancer patient. Um, she was describing kind of when her cervical cancer began. And it was 
No, I would say, I forget exactly, but maybe six months to a year after her son tragically died in a car accident. Oh and I'm willing to bet, um, and I did address this with her and just kind of the grief of that, but I'm willing to bet that a part of her died that day with her son and that she never really fully recovered from that. And think about the metaphor of this, you know, the cervix, the area literally where the, her, her son was brought into this world. Um, and all that grief that was probably wrapped into that and that she never really covered from. Um, so I, I think about that a lot. I think about, you know, I've had patients obviously that have had lung cancers and really progressed lung cancers. Now, obviously they could be smokers and that's the external piece. But there again, I think about all the grief that gets wrapped up into that and all the trauma. So I would say that um, trauma I think about as the seed that gets planted in the soil, the train of the body, whether the person is healthy or not, is gonna be the next factor. And then something like chronic stress, is something that's going to be feeding um, that seed and allowing it to grow. So do you have special stress proofing strategies for <laughs> cancer victims? And it's not just for those people that have cancer, it's for people that have any Absolutely. kind of disease. Right. So the first step is just engage the patient, right? I, I want to get them into a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. The fixed mindset would be, I don't know why this happened to me. I'm purely the victim. I'm going to go to whatever doctor is going to just fix me. And then I'm going to hopefully be on the other side of this and go on to life as normal. That's not the kind of patient that I'm looking for. That's the kind of patient who thinks that their car that's broken, it gets fixed by a mechanic. Um, and then moves on. What I basically want is I want the I want to encourage a growth mindset. I want the patient to say, "How am I again going to be better on the other side of this? What 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 have been the contributions in my life to this this diagnosis that I received? And then how am I going to change those things? I'm going to harmonize myself with natural principles, and then again come out on the other side of this a better, stronger, more empowered person. Now, once I've established that, what strategy I use is going to depend on the patient. And I basically break it down into three different categories. There's active strategies, and those are things that I'm going to try to educate my patient to do for themselves on a daily basis, maybe creating a routine of meditation or breath work, things that actively help them to de-stress, to get more in touch with their own spiritual essence, maybe, maybe even journaling to kind of try to catharsis, you know, different stressful events that have happened in their life. And then there's passive strategies. These are things that are um, you don't necessarily doing yourself, but maybe it's, they're being done to you. So for instance, maybe getting acupuncture or maybe taking herbal remedies, um, getting massage. So these things can, can help to heal the body, to mitigate stress. And then the last category is what I call stress proofing. And that basically just means putting yourself in little stressful situations in order to build up your stress resilience. Um, and that can be things like going into a sauna, which is an uncomfortable situation if it's you know cranked up pretty high and, and sweating, but then allowing yourself to be calm and to you know breathe through that stressful situation. Another great example of that, which I, I've experimented with personally on and off is just cold showers, you know, doing cold um, cold hypothermic practices. And, wow. and there's a lot of benefits to that too. But when you're in that cold water, let me tell you, if, you, if you're in the shower and you just crank it over to cold, your mind is nowhere else. I mean, that is basically forced meditation. The only thing you're thinking about is being in that cold water. But here's where the advantages lie. If you can be in that cold shower stream and then start to slow your breathing, check that, 
that stress response that's happening. That's what's that's where all the changes happen. Where all the, the magic of um, being able to mitigate the stress response. And those are stress proofing strategies that can be used. And what do you do about a stress proofing diet? Well, you know that's a that's a much bigger topic in terms of you know what's an uh, an anti cancer diet. But in terms of I mean, removing, I don't think there is one anti cancer diet. Absolutely, let me, let me you were completely that. right about that. I, 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 I feel don't the same way. Everybody should go raw foods or be a vegan because people die on some of those types of routines. Somebody, some some people need to eat meat and potatoes every day. Absolutely. So it's very dependent on the type of cancer. I, I agree with that. I, you know, and, and one of the people that I've always, uh, and I got the chance to meet him several years ago before he died was Nick Gonzalez, the medical doctor who um, he uh, had kind of friend, a different- My friend, my good friend. Yeah, he's lovely. I heard him lecture and I got to have dinner with him afterwards. And this is actually before my cancer diagnosis. And he was a brilliant man. And what a but loss. The thing, but, but the thing I, I always take away from took away from his work is that obviously you're going to individualize diet based upon constitution, which is that's, you know, that's straight up natural medicine. And the autonomic medicine. nervous system, sympathetic, parasympathetic balance. I love Correct. his work. Love it. But specific to your question, you mean, how do we stress give me our some, diet? Well, I'm just curious, you know, people follow me because of my diet books and so forth. So I'm just curious to know what, what you suggest as a general rule of thumb. Well, okay. We're, we, you and me are probably going to both agree about what a healthy diet looks like. You know, we're going to take out processed foods. We're going to take out all the junk and such. Right, right, and right. then from there, what a person chooses, you know, one of the ways I think about it with my patients is, you know, you want to try to find the things that are your, your, your kryptonite, basically. What are the things that really weaken you? And that's, that's to answer your question. How do we kind of stress-proof our diet, well, you're going to eliminate things that might be bothering you. And that's again, going to be very individualized. Now, there's some hard and fast rules there. Like, for instance, I think conventional wheat is off the table for every single person. There's no reason why anyone should be eating conventional wheat. It's just toxic. Now, you may do fine with organic sourdough bread, but that's very different than just saying, you know, the conventional wheat that's on most supermarket shelves. I could say that about hydrogenated vegetable oils and so on and so forth. So there's clearly there's things that are just toxic. And then there's the gray area, the things that may or may not be an issue for the person. So that can include things like nightshades, which some people can find they're sensitive and create inflammation. Um, it, could, it could be certain grains if they're sensitive to the lectins within them. But then within that, uh, I think that's where a lot of practitioners stop. And where I want to pick up from there is, okay, now we discussed maybe the things that could be weakening you, but now I want you to figure out what is going to empower you. And so I say to people, find your power foods, find the things that really make you feel good and maybe include more of those in your diet. And, and I know what that looks like for me. You know, I, for instance, I can be Japanese, you know, you can give me fish and sea, seaweed and all that stuff. And I feel like a million bucks, but that's going to be different than my wife who's German and Norwegian who, you know, she wants, she'll do great with beef and, you know, heavy cream sauces and she feels really good. So I say, don't just focus on the things that might be uh, negative in your diet, because then you can you can get really preoccupied about doing all this food avoidance and sensitivities. Really try to focus on the positive. What are the things that really make you stronger and eat more of those? Are there any dietary supplements that you like as a general rule of thumb? I know it has to be individualized, but are yeah. we talking about turmeric? We talking about berberine? Talking about ginger? I love all of those. You know, I think in terms of the cancer literature, the ones that come up over and over again are things like fish oil, green tea, and turmeric, um, which I absolutely love. And I think we would all do well to include more of those either in our diet or as supplements. And the ones that I, I feel I, 
I just absolutely adore, um, which are medicinal mushrooms. And that's because I actually just love going out in the woods and collecting maitake mushrooms, for instance. But these are fantastic medicinal herbs. Um, they're culinary gems. They're full of polysaccharides, beta-glucans, and they're they're just wonderful immune modulators. They have they have fantastic anti-cancer benefits and just a whole host of things. Um, so if if you're the, if you do well on mushrooms and you can either find them in terms of cooking with them or including them as a supplement, they can be really beautiful allies. Now I notice in our last remaining minutes, I want to talk about some of the other books that you've done. You have a book about cancer and EMF radiation. Do you want to touch upon that? What do people do for that in the environment? Yeah, so that was my my first book, and, and I wanted to try to basically um, get across one topic, which is, you know, um, is to be able to present the evidence that non-native electromagnetic fields are a potent human carcinogen. And in that book, I basically go through four different um, lines of evidence that suggest that that absolutely is the case. And so briefly, I think my three strategies there is avoidance to the highest degree possible, um, shielding for when you can't avoid something. And what should you avoid specifically? Um, so the three main camps there are, Radio frequency radiation, which are things like cell phones, cell phone towers, smart meters. The second category is just uh, extremely low frequency, um, AC, magnetic, and electric. That's just basically the everything that powers your house and your and all the electrical things that you plug in. And then the last is uh, dirty electricity, or otherwise known as voltage transients. Those are the three kinds of EMF that we're commonly being exposed to that we either need to avoid, shield, or mitigate in one form or another. And how do you know if those are impacting you? Do you have your people buy a meter? Absolutely. You know, I, I wrote a book about this many years ago, so I'm most in, most intrigued by this topic. Yeah. So at the, in the afterword of that book, I was I was um, really blessed to have a, a very experienced EMF inspector uh, to write that afterward, and he goes through the process of how do you actually walk through your home. Who did you have do that, by the way? Charles Keene. Yeah. Is he a building BMFs. biologist? He isn't a building biologist by training. He's kind of an old school, um, just EMF inspector. Um, oh, that works. That works very yeah. well. But I had, I did have a building biologist also read the manuscript and, and she gave me some feedback as well. So I incorporated some of those principles, but, but in the afterword of the book, um, Charles makes some very specific recommendations on the meters you can buy, um, how to walk through your house, you know, what to look for, the, the kind of numbers you should be getting and uh, to try to create a, a safer environment in terms of EMF exposure. So but do you to discuss me, that at all in this cancer stress and mindset? I mean, I received the book. I was able to read part of it, not all of it. Is that yeah. a section in the book, my friend? Uh, briefly, yeah. I do talk about how there there can be stress that comes just from electromagnetics. And, and, this is, and the reason why I guess I wrote about this in my first book is just because I feel like it's really the elephant in the room. I mean, this is something that, uh, I mean, you are certainly ahead of the time and in, in right, in you're writing about it, but it, you know, the, the proliferation of electromagnetic fields is just, it, it's nonstop. It just keeps on coming. And so I think we need to do everything we can in that regard to, um, to kind of safeguard our, our health. There's no question there. 
So mm-hmm. where can people find you, Brandon LaGreca? You're you're a 201 area code. That's New Jersey. Am I right? <laughs> That's where I grew up. Jersey. Yeah, but I'm actually um, I'm actually in uh, rural Wisconsin. I'm in a beautiful area, southeast Wisconsin. But um, so, I mean, I'm available there in, in terms of if you're if someone hearing this is, is local to uh, in the southeast Wisconsin area, but I'm available, you know, my books are available anywhere online. I have a, a blog that I contribute to monthly, whatever's kind of uh, interesting me. Tell us the uh, name of the blog. So it's Empowered Patient Blog. And you can just get right there if you just go empoweredpatientblog.com. Otherwise, to check out my books and kind of where I'll be speaking, I'll be speaking in uh, this November at Wise Traditions in Texas for the Western Price Foundation. Wonderful. It's a great organization. Yeah, I've, I very much enjoyed them. And so, um, and all that is accessible at uh, brandonlagreca.com. My last name is L-A-G-R-E-C-A. So brandonlagreca.com and that gets you pretty much everywhere. And that's so wonderful. So thank you so much for being my guest today. Did you enjoy our discussion? And Louise, it was an honor speaking to you. I, I have to say, I, I was a little nervous kind of talking to one of the greats in our field. I'm, I can look across my bookshelf and I see a couple of your books over there, but uh, I was very honored to speak with you and grateful and, um, and, and just grateful for this time together. That's very kind of you. And it's very kind of all of you to listen yet once again to a First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Join me again next week for a wonderful scintillating, scintillating guest. I want you to have a wonderfully safe, healthy, and eventful week, maybe a non-eventful week full of blessings, health, and hope. Shalom, everyone. And thank you once again, Brandon. And please don't forget to subscribe and like First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Thank you so very much.